0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell.
1: Hi, welcome back to Money & Markets. I'm Dan from Shares, and alongside my regular co-host, Tom Selby, I'm delighted to be joined by AJ Bell's Head of Active Portfolios, Ryan Hughes. Hello. Hello. So, Tom, what are we going to be talking about on the podcast this week?
0: Thanks, Dan. Uh, This week, Ryan will be talking us through the growing influence of China on stock market indices in the Far East and what this means for investors. We've got AJ Bell new boy Leith Calaf on the podcast today as well. He's going to be discussing Buffetology and investing in smaller companies. And I'll be assessing the Pinchers Minister's latest idea to allow people to access their retirement pot or some of their retirement pot early to fund a deposit on a house. But before we get we get on to that, Dan, it's been another week where coronavirus and specifically new mes- measures introduced from today, that's Wednesday, designed to intensify lockdowns in areas of the UK with high infection rates has dominated the headlines. Given we're being told the number of COVID cases now reached a similar level to March, are there any signs that stock markets are about to nosedive again?
1: Well, no, I mean, you've got a member with you know, even investing in UK markets, you're investing in uh, you know, a very large number of um, companies that do business around the world. So it's not simply mm. just what's happening in the UK in terms of coronavirus. But yeah, yeah, I mean, cases are picking up in, in various parts of the world. But you no, know, the market's been doing all right. The so US um The tech-heavy Nasdaq has been picking up very nicely so far this month, uh, particularly helped by Apple doing well. Um, On the UK market, the AIM stock's actually doing very well. Um, And in Europe, you're actually getting some interesting noises from companies like Pandora, Zalando, and Novo Nordisk, all of whom have been raising earnings guidance. So, you know, against this backdrop of um, doom and gloom, I think Mm. there's there's still evidence that companies are doing okay. So, I mean, it's... the property market is something that um, perhaps is a good indication of, of how parts of the world can keep functioning, particularly in the UK. So the property market's done very well since the summer, um, helped by stamp duty relief. And we just had the house builder Barrett's developments talking about a uh, 20% rise in reservations and a 25% rise in completions since July. So um, yeah, it's doing very well. It's got stamp duty um, in its favor at the moment. It's also got... Um, house the help to buy scheme uh, is obviously giving people uh, help onto the property ladder. And of course, we talked the other day on the podcast about um, Boris Johnson wanting to have ninety-five percent mortgages, potentially mm, yes. some government-backed stuff. There, so there's lots of tailwinds there for property market. So whilst people might be, um, you know, some parts of the world might be experiencing unemployment or nervousness in terms of their finances, there are other parts of it where people are just cracking on. Spending money, so mm. um, yeah, it's interesting stuff. So elsewhere on the markets, we had um, Bunzel hit a, a new all-time high. This is a this is a FTSE one hundred company, which um, you, you perhaps may not be too familiar with its name, but it it provides products for companies in order to, to do business. So not things that they directly sell on to their customers, but you know, for example, if you go into a Starbucks and you see the slate. Um, on which they've got like muffins displayed in the cabinet. Well, Bunzel will be supplying that slate. Um, the coffee cups you have when you go into, say, Costa Coffee, that would be another Bunzel product. But you now this year it's all been about COVID-related products that's been supplying to businesses. It's done very well. Um, you know, ASOS has just come out saying it's added 3 million customers in the past year. And its annual profits have been jumping thanks to cost cutting and buyers returning fewer items amid the pandemic. But its shares actually took a real knock when it said it was worried about unemployment hitting young customers. So so whilst, yes, there are businesses that are doing okay at the moment, you know, there's still a level of uncertainty, which means that investors should be, don't be complacent about stocks you own, just constantly check that they're, you know, the businesses are, are doing well and they're financially strong. So other stuff on the market, we've got, um, forthcoming uh, flotation for a new investment trust called Roundhill Music. So this will be a direct rival to Hypnosis Songs Fund to invest in um, the rights connected with um, popular songs. So every time you hear a specific song on the radio or it features in a film or an advert, it will get a royalty payment. So uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, it's said it's hoping to pay a 4.5% yield, so it might be of interest to income investors. Um, looking at nine to eleven percent total return a year. Um, I, I had a quite an interesting conversation with the boss of it the other day. He was saying that how during lockdown, so many um, artists who, who rely on income from touring who now find themselves a um, real shortfall for, you know, in terms of their their personal revenue. And he'd just done a deal with um, one of the original guitarists from the from the rock band Kiss, uh, mm. where he was saying that this this guy, whilst he's not in the band, any longer, he still gets the royalties from certain songs. And so um, he normally makes a living playing cruises. Uh, and so all these cruise ships are not happening at the moment. So he sold his rights to some songs and um, so every time you might hear a Kiss song in the future, this round your music or get a little ka-ching, uh, another comment. Uh, <laughs> and that's how it will uh, be funding its dividends. So
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with that. Because you'll, you'll, you'll remember, Dan, we've talked about it in the in the past. Uh, some of my old friends from school were in a band that was sort of vaguely successful for a period of time. They're better than vaguely successful. They were quite successful called Wild Beasts. And um, obviously they they split up. Two years ago, I think something like that. But a couple of them um, have gone on to try to do um, solo stuff. And first of all, I'm, I'm familiar with the, the annuity payments that they receive from, um, from from some of their songs being being played. And I think it's quite a small amount, especially when you're in a, a big band. But I guess it's a useful amount of, um, of income. But yeah, I think they're while they're doing okay. There's obviously real, real challenges for for creative artists in in that space and, and in other spaces as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, the, and the other. The other quite bizarre bit of news that caught my attention this week. Oh, um, I'm I'm excited already, Dan. Is an an Italian Instagram star called Chiara Faragni, who's got 21 million followers, um, is a fashion influencer. She wants to float herself on the stock market, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which is a, a bit bizarre. So she earns money from promoting certain brands, And this is quite big business these days, Mm. particularly sort of luxury goods brands and fashion brands will pay um, people with loads of followers on social media to sort of push their products. And, um, you know, she's this person's controls sort of two or three companies where that do different things. Um, Didn't know which one's actually going to be floated in the market, but it'd be interesting if it gets away, it might sort of plant the idea into many other people who've got huge followings on social media can they monetize this following but yeah um, yeah you a question about you know when you make an investment in something what's the long-term earnings potential and uh you know I'm, i think fame is a bit fickle um unfortunately <laughs> so uh, um and i don't you know watch this space i think but um yeah yeah any definitely. any any
0: signs any signs
1: of of you doing something similar dan um no i'm i'm, I'm- <laughs> I, I don't think uh, don't think my fame is quite at the level in which to. You've, you've got you've got a
0: pretty you've got a pretty loyal Twitter following.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, not not yeah. big enough, I'm afraid to uh, to go around to try and convince some um, to quid. back my own idea. <laughs> 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 okay, so I mean, other stuff we're going to talk about this week. So with well, there's plenty of data suggests that investing in smaller companies can be a good move, particularly if you're patient, but. Um, we we've recently had a small cap investment trust scrap plans to join the market because they didn't get enough demand from investors to, to back their launch. And you know, there's plenty of other small cap funds which aren't particularly doing well that year, you know, this year. So, so Laith is going to join us. And so Leith, what is the appeal of investing in smaller companies? And do you think that investors should actually look past all the noise that's currently depressing
2: this part of the market and, and
1: still look for opportunities here?
2: Yeah, hi Dan. Um, I think you're right that you know there is a lot of negative sentiment towards, I guess particularly the UK, but also you can see why that would spread across the, the smaller companies given the, the economic climate is is pre- pretty bleak and we're we're facing a winter where we don't know what what COVID restrictions are going to come up and what they're going to do to the UK economy. So um, from a from a demand point of view, you can see there might be you know an issue with investors actually wanting to to put their, their toe in the market. I think if you actually look at the long-term returns from smaller companies, the reality is that they have been superior to, to the big blue chips. So if you look over the last 10 years, for instance, your, your 100 pounds invested in uh, in the FTSE 100 would a, would be worth 155 pounds now. Um, if you had invested that instead in the FTSE, Small cap index, uh, which is uh, obviously the smaller companies that are fully listed, you'd have £227 now. So obviously quite a big difference there. That obviously is the appeal of of, uh, putting your money into smaller companies. Uh, But the flip side is that when things go sour, they go sour pretty pretty badly. So if you look back to the financial crisis, for instance, um, £1,000 invested, in June t- 2007 so you know as the market was on on the turn the peak before the financial crisis you'd have had to watch your 1,000 pounds fall by around 500 pounds to pretty much half down to the low in March 2009 so pretty painful stuff now interestingly that 1,000 pounds would now uh, be worth around 2400 pounds so it would have recovered but you really would have had to have some uh, you know, pretty steely nerves to to see out that initial quite long two-year period when um, you know your the value of your of your portfolio was falling.
1: And so what? So we had Telworth um, tried to launch uh, an investment trust recently. So this is the one that was that got pulled. They were trying to sort of back a mixture of companies that are doing well, um, that UK companies doing well overseas, and also ones uh, perhaps struggling at the moment because. Coronavirus might have disrupted their earnings. So, are you surprised that they didn't get that trust away, and or is it, is it? I presume this is quite a crowded market already for small cap funds.
2: Well. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm slightly surprised in that you, you, you know, you would think they might have tested the water first. Um, and hopefully that is what um, Buffetology has has done, um, because, you know, there are, of course, retail investors who might be interested in uh, investing in these trusts. But equally, there are institutional investors, wealth managers who want to put money into them. Um, so um, Telworth obviously decided that they, they, they simply weren't making enough progress and they'll come back and have a, another bite uh, at another time um, you know I think with the Buffetology launch which is going on at the moment they've got a you know, a long standing uh, top performing fund the UK Buffetology fund which stands them in good stead they've got the brand name of Buffet um, which stands them in good stead but obviously that's um, you know that's going to have to to, to earn its keep in, in raising, you know, the hundred million minimum that they're looking to get the product off the ground. Um, so it, 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 you know, it remains to be seen. We haven't heard anything from them as yet, which suggests that it's still going along. Closing date for the offer period is, is next Friday, so we're, get, we're getting close to that. And, you know, you can see why the kind of buffetology approach of you know investing in quality companies, which you know, should offer some, some downside protection, should work well in the smaller company space. And indeed, quite a lot of the existing fund, the UK buffetology fund is invested in, in UK in UK small caps. Um, so you know it, it 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 has been proven to work in practice too.
1: So one thing that I always notice is if you look at investment trusts in the small company space, nearly all of them will trade below the value of their assets. So I wonder. If there's people interested in new smaller company funds coming to the market, that might actually just want to wait a
2: bit and see if they can get a better price rather than buying the the IPO. I, th- I think that's absolutely spot on, Dan, because uh, as you say, um, you know a lot a lot of investment trusts will trade at a discount. So you know the average UK smaller companies investment trust at the moment trading at a nine percent discount. Um, to its its net asset value you know you throw into that the fact that you've got the setup um, uh, costs of the trust which you know initial investors pay which you know Buffettology is looking at 2p in the pound and you can see why people might be be you know wanting to to wait until the, the trust actually hits the market um, until they start you know uh, uh, investing and you know that's that's really a bit of a a headwind for investment trust launches uh more more generally i guess the the reason why you might think think about investing in the offer price if you think that there's going to be an awful lot of demand for a product and that it's going to actually move to a premium um, in 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 the medium term that would be you know a good reason to get on board but i i, th- I think that point is, is 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 well made that you know a lot of the trusts will actually trade at a discount a cheap price once they hit market
1: so I say, we've got um, Keith Ashworth, Lord, who's going to be the fund manager of this new Buffetology Trust. We, we're getting him onto the podcast in a couple of uh, two or three weeks' time. So, um, any listeners, if you're interested in um, sort of sending us some questions you want us to ask on your behalf, please do drop us um, an email: podcast at ajbell.co.uk. We'll do our best to um, to grill Keith on. Um, uh, what what you, you know your burning questions there, and I'm sure he'll he'll have a view about how um, easy or hard it is to to get a new smaller companies fund off the ground. So China has of course dominated
0: the news agenda in 2020 with Wuhan the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic outbreak, and of course trade tensions constantly bubbling beneath the surface with the U.S. and Donald Trump. But Ryan, you've been looking at the growing influence of the so-called Red Dragon on indices in the Far East. So can you tell us exactly what's been happening and what it might mean for investors?
3: Sure. Yeah, I mean, certainly, as we know, over the last 20 or so years, China has become a a dominant force in the world behind Mm -hmm. the U.S. And actually, China now accounts for around 20 percent of global GDP, So it is it is a major, major uh, player, but perhaps what people may not be quite so aware of is just how much the influence of China and Chinese companies uh, now makes in uh, indices such as the MSCI Emerging Markets Index uh, or also the MSCI uh, Asia Pacific X Japan Index, a bit of a mouthful, that one, <laughs> but, but an index uh, investing in Asia and China and China related um, countries, so Hong Kong, uh, for example, I mean, they now make up around 50% of both of those benchmarks. And of course, we'll see lots of investors that are using um, the A.J. Bell uh, service will, be, will probably have some allocation to Asia and some allocation to emerging markets and may not be realizing that actually, in many cases, they're doubling up their exposure and not getting much in the way of diversification benefit from uh, from investing in what they think are quite different areas of the market.
0: What, what exactly can um, can investors do about that at the moment? Is there, is, is there a way that investors who want to invest in those indices but are concerned about being overly exposed to, to the fortunes of, of, of Japan? Is there, are, there, are there any alternatives at this stage? Or, or is there something that needs, needs to be done to give investors more choice?
3: The, the answer is, is yes and yes. In, in, in terms okay. of the alternatives... Um, there are, are now more and more uh, options for people that want to invest directly uh, in China. So if, if we look at in the investment association China sector, uh, there are currently 40 different funds uh, to choose from. But, but I think what you need to be careful of is they invest in different, different parts of the Chinese market. And the one thing that's become very clear and, and, and is a very um, exciting, I think, growth area is the development of the China A-share market. So that's an index which focuses on domestic China. So those companies that are listed in China and operating in China. Now, now currently, uh, these account for about 4% of the emerging market benchmark, so not very much. But actually, their weight is currently suppressed by the index provider because China is not uh, operating in a fully open and transparent manner in the way that other developed markets are. If we look at the statistics from uh, recently put out by Allianz Global Investors, uh, if China, Asia, the domestic market was allowed to be fully representative of its size, it would actually make up not 4% of the index, but 27% of the index. So a huge differential there. Uh, and really, I think the interesting point for me here um, is China is actually, as a, if we look at on a global scale, is only a little bit behind Japan in terms of its global influence on the stock market. And we've had dedicated Japanese funds for, for many, many years. And I'm sure many listeners will have exposure to a Japanese fund or a Japanese trust. But when it comes to China, it's still wrapped up in an Asian fund or an emerging market fund. So choice is increasing, but there's a lot further to go. And I think the really interesting development is the, is the growth of the, the domestic market, of which there are about 4,000 companies listed. There are 700 in the China uh, onshore index. And this bit of the market performs very, very differently to your normal MSCI emerging markets uh, based tracker or fund or the or an Asian based one. So that's where the growth is, is looking like it's coming. There'll be more and more products coming out for investors to choose from in the Asia share market. But the big point I would focus on is while it play such a dominant part of the index, um, it, it, asset managers are unlikely to really decouple their China exposure from their emerging market exposure. So we need index providers to act on this uh, and, and help diversify the product set. And we need asset managers to do that too.
1: So Ryan, why do you think that um, asset managers are not going to decouple China from, from EM exposure? Because surely, because you know, it, it's so becoming so... Um, like I say, so, so dominance in um, so many areas of um, you know, businesses. What, it, it seems a, a clear thing to do now. Surely there must be demand for people who just want China-only um, products.
3: I, I think you're, you're right that there is demand out there and we're seeing the number of funds that invest in China increase. But it's, I think it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem here is while the major benchmarks that, that asset managers look to build their products on are essentially including China. Uh, unless that changes, uh, I think they're unlikely to really push ahead very hard with, uh, with having products that are investing in emerging markets ex-China or Asia Pacific ex-Japan and ex-China. Um, so I think it probably needs to be led by the benchmark providers before the asset managers truly follow. But we are, for those people that want dedicated China, there is a good choice out there now but I think it's a case of just be slightly careful because you might find if you're investing in Asia, investing in emerging markets, and have a dedicated China holding, that in fact all you're doing is 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 allocating to the same sets of companies in all three instances.
1: Actually, because I've I've been sort of contacted by quite a few readers of Shares Magazine to ask how do I um, get exposure to Asia and make sure that I have no China exposure at all? Because I, some people were sort of saying they didn't like the way either companies do business or, or the lack of transparency and stuff like that. So, um, you know, whilst there's demand for something specific, there's it clearly is demand for something that's um, yeah. much more focused. I think, you know, people, particularly in the UK, are looking at Asia much more with interest, but just don't want a one size fits all sort of solution.
3: Yeah, no, I, I entirely agree. In fact, if you, if you take a quick search of the ETF market in the UK, I found only one ETF, which was investing in MSCI emerging markets ex-China. So if you don't want to have exposure to China, but you do want exposure to broader based emerging markets or Asia, there are very, very few products um, out there that are actually allowing you to do that. Unless you start going down the country specific route of owning a little bit of a Brazilian tracker, a little bit of a Russian tracker, tracker and then a little bit of an Indian tracker, for example. And that, of course, becomes very, very complex, I think, for lots of people to do.
1: Tom, the pensions minister this week suggested people should be able to access their retirement pot early in order to help get them on housing ladder. Um, So do you think this is actually going to happen? This is a good idea. So I certainly sort of raised a few eyebrows when I saw the headlines. Uh, yeah, sort of the reaction on social media wasn't necessarily favourable. <laughs> yeah, pensions Twitter is a is a powerful thing,
0: isn't it? Um, so when I think when when government ministers float ideas like this, or when ideas are floated in the press, there's kind of three different categories. There's ideas that have been bought into by different parts of government, so by the Treasury um, and other people, and are essentially happening. Um, you'll have ideas that are kind of a toss up, so about 50-50, and they'll, and they'll be testing the water to see what the reaction is. And then you'll have ideas that are just being kind of thrown out there from a special bright ideas box that the minister has got. And I think this one probably falls into that third category. So the, the idea of allowing people to use their pension or part of their pension um, to fund other things other than retirement isn't new. So back in 2011, the Treasury um, uh, issued a call for evidence and then quite quickly rejected the idea of early access to up to a quarter of your pension pot, and that could be for things like getting on the on the housing ladder or potentially um, if you're if you're in um, if you're in significant financial distress, then the argument is that you could have another use for that money other than saving for retirement. So you can see why with an idea like this, it might be appealing to a politician. So um, I think Guy Opperman, the pensions minister, is looking at automatic enrolment, seeing that lots of people will be building up pensions and potentially barely being aware of it. And, and reaching a point where they might actually have a half decent pot of money there in terms of wanting to get on the housing ladder. So if you you, you might build up a, a pension pot worth ten thousand pounds in say three four years through, automatic enrolment, depending on your your wages and how much your employer pays in. You may you may have done that, but without really realizing what you're doing. You see, you've got ten thousand pounds in your in your pension. If the government allowed you to take that out and put it towards a first home, then I suspect lots of people would be. Quite happy with that um, as a, as an idea because it would mean that they would be able to get on the housing ladder, ladder quicker quicker than they may have been able to otherwise, particularly if they haven't saved um, any money for themselves. So you can see why, um, on the face of it, it's quite an attractive idea. But I think there are there are various certainly at least questions that would need to be answered before this was going to go, go from being a, a kind of minister's special box idea to being an actual idea that the government were going to run with. So, um, I mean, we we, we put out a, a note just kind of raising four key questions that the government would need to answer before it was going to introduce a reform like this. So firstly, um, one of the, the most significant problems facing the UK at the moment is a lack of saving for retirement. It's the reason that automatic enrollment was introduced, um, albeit at relatively low levels of contribution. So 8% of um, of a band of earnings uh, is a total contribution with uh, with 4% coming from the employee, 3% from the employer, and the final 1% coming from tax relief. Now, it's generally accepted that that is an absolute bare Minimum and people need to save over and above um, that minimum amount in order to end up with a decent retirement pot. So, if you're going to move to allow people to access that money early, then the danger is that that's going to deplete a pension pot that's already not going to be big enough as it is. And while taking, say, £10,000 out when in the context of a retirement might not seem like such a big deal. If those are people in the early stages of retirement, as I said, you might be talking about four, three, four years of contributions being drained and them having to start again. So it's going to make saving for retirement more difficult for people if they do take advantage of um, being allowed to access their pension if that were allowed. And it would it's not clear how people would be able to Fill the gap unless their contributions increased significantly. Um, the second, quite obvious point, is that if you allow people to access their pension early, then presumably there would be an increased demand for properties because people would all of a sudden have uh, easier access to ready cash. So if if people have got if there's an increase in demand and people have got more money, then there's a decent chance that all you'll do is stoke extra house price inflation. And as a result, you won't really make much difference to affordability. And the government's looking here, really, I think, at at first time buyers and and younger people. But you won't really change affordability. And and, and at the same time, you'll risk um, doing serious damage to people's retirement prospects. Um, The third point is that uh, Guy Opperman here has been talking specifically about property, but there's no obvious reason why this should be linked to property. So while... Uh, buying a first home is clearly an aspirational thing for lots and lots and lots of people. It's it's not something that's an absolute necessity. And if you think of um, the situations that some people will find themselves in, particularly um, as we as as job losses increase, lots and p- lots of people will be in very vulnerable financial situations. And I think the, there's a strong argument to be made that if you were going to look at early access, then you should be focusing primarily on people who are in really financially vulnerable positions who potentially got lots of high cost debts and and are struggling to make ends meet rather than people who are looking to get on the property ladder. And the final final point I'd make is that we already have a, a savings product in the UK that does this job. So the Lifetime ISA was launched in the UK a few years ago, aimed squarely at Younger people, so people aged 18 to thirty-nine, and that lets you save up to four grand a year, and you get a top up of twenty-five percent, so up to a thousand pounds a year. Um, If you withdraw the money before, uh, if you withdraw the money to put towards a deposit on your first home, and it's worth less than four hundred and fifty grand, then you can take the money out tax-free. You can take it out tax-free at sixty as well. So it's it's kind of a dual-purpose product. But given. That we already have this product in place, and frankly, given that the pension rules change enough already and are already complicated enough as it is, it, it, it seems to me that any move to to try to alter a pension so that it can do something other than provide, other than aim to provide you with an income in retirement, would be would be an odd move. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put anything past politicians, particularly politicians who are who are looking at, in, uh, towards the the next election. I suspect already and thinking about the things that might be popular. But there's lots of reasons why I think this shouldn't be something that should be a priority for ministers at the moment.
1: Yeah, it does seem a bit strange, doesn't it? Really, I mean, just the idea of someone sort of taking all the money out of their pension pot just to buy a house, and you're saying they have to replenish that question yeah. about how, how quickly they're going to do it but also and, it's, yeah they're just going to miss you know the huge compounding benefits of having money in your pension so if you're reinvesting all the dividends every year it makes you you, you know increases your pot size and then a year later you're going to get even more dividends on that and you, you this compounding benefit is one of the key attractions of long-term investing so mm. if someone is essentially going back to uh, say so they do it for three or four years and then buy a house. They go back to stage one again. Start yeah. from nothing. It's it going to it take them longer to to really start uh, enjoying these compounding benefits. I, I, it's it's something that I think the government seems obsessed with housing. Um, yes, you know I think we, we we have an issue here where there needs to be increase in supply housing, um, not simply just pushing people towards. Um, you know, buying whatever you can find now because it's you know, like you say it will definitely push up prices which is no good to anyone really is it yeah it,
0: it, Yeah, it, you know, the, the the cutting stamp duty while welcomed by lots and lots of people isn't going to solve the housing problems we have in the UK if you allow people to access their pensions early that's not going to solve the problem and not only will it not solve the problem but it'll create another problem into the future as well um, I mean if we were in if we're in the position where people were you know, contributions to pensions were a lot higher than they are at the moment, and people have built up decent pots, then it might be a slightly different debate. But at the moment, we're at this stage where, through automatic enrollment, the the, the amount that people are being nudged to paint their retirement pots is frankly well, well short of what they're going to need in retirement. So Really, the debate should be moving on in 2020 to how do we get people to understand that they're going to need to save over and above that auto enrolment minimum in order to enjoy a decent quality of life in retirement rather than moving the debate on how do we find a way to access this money quickly to make it even more difficult. It does seem it does seem crazy and not the right place to be in but there's there's, there's clearly a with within within this government in particular there's obviously a, a a desire to to help people onto the
1: property ladder any any way they can so that's everything from us this week thanks ever so much for tuning in i hope you enjoyed it um please do leave a review uh, where you listen to the podcast it really helps uh, let us know whether you actually like it or not um, it also helps other people who might be uh, curious and wondering whether they should be listening to it so Uh, Thanks very much, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.
0: Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes, and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change, and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply And that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.